Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I spent all of law school kind of in this battle with myself. Do I want to be pursuing something more in the arts and entertainment field, or do I want to be here in law? When I went to law school, I had this idea in my head, which I'd been told by a couple of people, if you can do anything in your life other than work in the arts and be happy, do that. So when I entered law school, I decided I was going to give up everything else, just quit a cold turkey, do nothing but focus on the law. And I was able to make it three months. And so the summer after I graduated law school, I started to have this really crazy thought of like, wait a second, what if I did go into the arts and what if I went into TV and film? Which was this thought I'd never had before. You basically, you were on track to being one of the top lawyers around because of the cases you were involved in. You could have gone in any direction possible, like banking, hedge funds, being a top lawyer, being federal, being corporate, whatever. And you said, screw it, I'm gonna start at the bottom in a totally different field I've never done before. <laughs> when did you decide to say, hey, I hate this. <laughs> I'm gonna write for major TV shows from now on and how did that happen? Excited to have Adam Perlman here. Adam, before you speak, I'll just give some a little bit of an intro. You went the standard path of Harvard, then NYU Law School, then you were a practicing lawyer, and then suddenly you quit, go to TV, you switch careers completely, you write on some of my favorite shows. You write on The Newsroom, The Good Wife, Billions, which uh, now that this podcast is airing after Billions is airing, I could say I'm a technical advisor on this season of Billions, so that's how we got to know each other. Technically accurate, yes. So I'll tell you, well, one time we had coffee, and I said it's so great that Billions is focusing on the reality of these people's careers and, and situations. And I said, as opposed to uh, what I felt were certain scenes from The Good Wife. And then you said, are you kidding me? And, and I said, no. You said, you know, I wrote, you know, episodes of The Good Wife, right? Uh, I wrote on the last season of The Good Wife. Yeah, you were just accidentally slagging off shows I'd worked on. It was fun. And yeah, I think that show has a lot more verisimilitude than other legal shows. But absolutely, there are things that we, we get wrong. We get them wrong almost always intentionally. But that's, that's a decision back and forth, right? Well, well and I, I want to get to that in a, in a little bit. But first off, I want to kind of explore the decision of going from lawyer to TV writer. Because I think a lot of people just get stuck. They're listening to this. They're stuck in their cubicle. And they're like, boy, I really wish I could have been an artist or a musician or a writer. So, so did you want to be a lawyer as a kid? What did you want to be as when you were a kid? 
Like when you were nine years old, what did you want to be? I wanted to be center fielder for the New York Yankees, maybe, maybe center for the New York Knicks. And I never got uh, that tall or not Jewish. <laughs> We've had two centers on on the show. What was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? He was center. And Bill Cartwright was a center. Both of those are centers, yep. Yeah, so, so and but we haven't had any baseball players on, so... Well, you know, when we have that on. But okay, other than that, like by the time you were 12 or 14 and you realized that your athletic prowess was going to take right. you there. No, I never I, I never thought about seriously being a lawyer. I also never thought seriously about entertainment. Uh, really, I was focused on being a doctor. Yeah, in terms of, in terms of what I thought I would be, uh, it really took sort of a, a sideways detour first into theater, which was completely by chance. I needed to fill out an arts elective to graduate from high school. And the only one I could fit into my schedule was directing theater. And that class just wound up being incredibly meaningful for me and led to me doing some plays in high school and led me actually thinking about theater as a life when I went to college. And so I wound up uh, just for sort of a side project writing a very short one-act play just because it was the sort of thing I wanted to try directing. I just wanted to give myself material to direct and it wound up being seen by this professor I had at the time, a guy named uh, Bob Scanlon, who was among other things a dramaturg to Samuel Beckett and David Mamet and David Rabe. And so a couple months later, I needed to figure out what my thesis was going to be. And so I came to him and I said, oh, I have this idea about Arthur Miller and David Mamet, the salesman in American theater, this whole thing about capitalism and its impact on the American spirit, all kind of relevant to billions again. Yeah, isn't that fascinating actually? Well, that's the thing. I went to him about this notion and he said, well, why don't you just write a play instead? And I hadn't thought of that. He said, let's write a play together. And so that became my thesis. The first time I wrote a full-length thing was actually working with that professor and putting together this thesis play. And so I sort of stumbled through directing uh, and through knowing him into, into writing something. And so when I graduated college, I was in this very strange place of, do I want to direct? Do I want to write? Do I want to do you know something more responsible? And I had this notion, which I, I'm sure other people did, of, okay, is it really responsible in this day and age in this political environment to just go out and be an artist? Is there something uh, indulgent about that, being able to say that? First, what did you learn from this guy about who, who's been a teacher to so many? What did you learn that surprised you about writing a play? So, um, so even back it up one step. So when we talk about dramaturgy, sort of the primary job of a dramaturg is to explain what a dramaturg does. And his view of it, which, uh, which I've come to adopt over time, is that you're the advocate of the piece of writing. Everybody else in a room, in a production, the actors, the directors, the commercial producers, whoever else it is, have their own dog in the fight. The dramaturg should be the person who is only thinking about the play and what the play wants to be in the best possible version of that, forgetting anybody's egos or agendas. Because the, the writer is, you know, besides just thinking about your career, maybe there's a reason you wanted to write the thing, right? Maybe you wanted to write it because it was uh, about somebody you had dearly loved or because you're trying to make a particular point about the healthcare system or whatever else it is. And then eventually that thing, even if it was motivated you to start it in the first place, might actually be fighting with the content that you've created, mm. right? Over time, those things can actually come into, into opposition. And sometimes there can be, uh, you know, a, a third party, almost neutral or at least invest it's almost uh, like a guardian ad litem, right? You'd think a parent always has the kid's best interest at heart, but sometimes you need a, a third party in there. And so um, because sort of he came from that perspective and I came from that perspective to, to playwriting, it was just very interesting to 
to really think a lot about how are you telling the story, how are you letting the thing be the best version of itself, and so how do you, um, how through sort of structure, through the formal aspects of it, through thinking about how you build scenes one to the next and how you visualize the the shape of it, how is that conveying meaning, right, in a way that maybe the uh, the viewer, the listener, uh, whoever it is your audience, uh, doesn't necessarily get on rather an intellectual level, but it's there, it's underneath, it's creating this feeling of satisfaction when you've nailed it. Well, 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 this is going to relate to future questions yeah, yeah. that I ask you about how you write the shows that you've worked on. But the other thing I wanted to mention about Harvard and your experience there and, and, and you choosing in a certain environment to take the steady path of law, I, feel, I sort of feel like Harvard's the one school where a normal career path is to go to Hollywood to write on TV shows. Like everyone in Hollywood writing on TV shows comes from Harvard. Yeah, that is a strange thing that I wasn't super aware of while I was there. Like you didn't work at the Harvard Lampoon or anything? Exactly. So I didn't work at the Lampoon. Uh, I wasn't a, uh, principally a comedy writer. So you're right, there's absolutely this uh, pipeline to Conan and the Simpsons and SNL uh, that, that comes through through Harvard, and particularly the Lampoon, a little bit through the pudding. Uh, and instead, I was, a, I was a somewhat more serious man of the theater. Uh, and so instead, I never, I never really thought about TV or film. You know, I'm from the East Coast. Uh, I had stayed... You know, I'd stayed in the East Coast my whole life. And so all I was really thinking about was New York theater. And so you went from being in New York theater to just doing what all your friends did, I'm assuming, which is apply to law school. <laughs> so law school was absolutely a sort of uh, final semester of school freak out for me. It was the moment where I'm like, wait a second, what am I about to do? I'm just going to go to New York and just try to make it in the theater. What a crazy thing that is to do. What a crazy thing it is to do with this degree. What it's a crazy thing to do when I know other people who are about to go work for the State Department. Should I be making a bigger uh, impact uh, that way? And also, and I just um, sort of took this for granted a number of the uh, a number of the other people who were sort of saying they were going to go live the artist's life I realized all of a sudden were um, were just vastly wealthier than I was and had more of kind of a net than I did uh, and that was just something I'd never I'd never put all these pieces together before and so at the last moment said you know what why don't I just apply to law school that seems like the better way to do this and so um, I got into a few law schools and chose to go to NYU because I wanted to be uh, in New York and I actually deferred my admission I was going to give myself two years to make it in theater in New York. And what happened? Uh, what happened was uh, I got to New York uh, immediately and started working in the theater. I worked at the acting company. I worked at the uh, the Flea. I directed a play at the New York Fringe Festival. And then I got really quickly uh, sort of exposed to the idea of what a, a career as a director potentially looked like. Uh, and it looked like this, this thing because I didn't do sort of um, avant-garde downtown New York theater that I thought would make an incredible splash overnight. Um, you know, it, it looked like a very long slog and a long slog through working with some of these um, artistic directors who I was getting to see were perhaps a little bit more um, a little bit more jaded uh, than unfortunately you, you want to believe as a 22 year old and similarly I was getting a look at uh, the insides of some of these arts administration um, areas uh, looking at being a lit manager which I was or a dramaturg and seeing sort of that life and just just looking at them they started feeling uh, a little bit less appealing than I wanted. Uh, and at the time, I was, as I said, I was directing this play at the New York Fringe Festival, and it was frustrating the hell out of me because, um, uh, you know, there was sort of this push and pull with the writer and the director. Uh, I sort of thought I was signing up for one thing that wasn't what it turned out to be. And so one day, very frustrated, I wrote 
an email to NYU and I said, hey, I know I'm not supposed to come for at least another year, but um, I'm just wondering, is there any way to potentially consider coming this fall? And I went out and when I came back home, I had an email that said, the Committee on Admissions has formally approved your request. You begin on such and such a date. In other words, we're happy to accept your money a year earlier than otherwise. Welcome to the welcome to the team. That's exactly right. They wanted me there in like two weeks and I took that as a sign. And so you went to law school, graduated, and then you actually became a lawyer. I did. What kind of lawyer were you? I was a corporate litigator working down uh, the firm of Cahill Gordon down on Wall Street. And what, what, were, what was something you litigated? Let's see. I was, uh, I was working on behalf of some of the... Uh, some of the lenders, some of the uh, some of the people involved in uh, maybe the uh, the mortgage bubble, uh, and uh, then looking at uh, also some of the ratings agencies who were uh, who were write, rating some of those uh, some of those loans. So you're so, kind of the center of the universe of the biggest collapse ever. I was working on some of the general corporate evil in a in a very small uh, in a very small capacity under some uh, creative and I think correct legal theories uh, about. Uh, the ratings being actually an expressive act, right? Being freedom of speech. So I was working on a bit of a freedom of speech angle, and then I was also working on some ideas that, uh, which I also think is true, that some of the people uh, who had invested in some of these lenders were turning around, suing them, claiming, oh my God, you were doing horribly illegal things. And the defense was to some degree, "Mm, if we were, it was pretty public, and isn't that why you invested? And didn't you make money off it? So... Maybe go fuck yourselves. Uh, and so uh, it was. It was kind of an interesting little nexus, but at the same time, you know, the the world of of law, especially for first time associate, is is not quite as sexy as it was on on TV. But, I, I was not. I was not really as deep in the trenches as as the shows suggest. But given but given that um, you were you were a lawyer involved in such an important kind of high stakes uh, high stakes type of case, not like a murder case or anything, but you know, the whole financial. Uh, the U.S. the the U.S. financial system like almost went into collapse because of the exact same things you were litigating. Absolutely, around. you kind of saw that that no matter who is good or evil or how you label that, there was it's complicated, it's messy. Fundamentally, one of the things as a as a litigator that's interesting is they encourage you right to shed the the morality, right? To shed the idea of the greater impact on culture. When you're practicing in corp- corporate litigation, it's how do you craft the best argument? How do you find the best way to defend your client? And with an understanding that if you fundamentally believe in the system, that sort of carries the day, right? To, if both sides have really well-trained litigators, then everything's fair and it'll all come out in the wash. And, and But do you see people go over the line pressing their case? Oh, absolutely. Some of the people who are the best respected uh, in their fields are the ones who are going to push, you know, up to the line. It, it seems, and you know, this is unrelated to television writing or the decision you made to to make the leap eventually. But like when you say the mortgage lenders had kind of almost like a freedom of speech speech uh, right to say what their ratings were, and yet often the loans they were rating. They, they were being fed by, they had a conflict of interest with the banks who were paying them. Um, now there's like, there would be disclosure issues, like so-and-so is paying us X and this is a loan from so-and-so so that we're rating, so we're just disclosing this. So now I feel like uh, there's, there's the, the law has changed more in the favor of disclosure than freedom of speech on these things. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, yes, yeah, so it's not about the the lenders themselves. It was uh, I, those are two separate issues. But with the with the ratings agencies themselves, I mean, there was a fair amount of disclosure. Then there became some more disclosure. I mean, again, now we're looking at rolling back potentially some of those and other regulations that may have safeguarded people in the in the wake of that. Uh, I mean, the freedom of speech issue is is not all that different potentially from the one you know in in Citizens United, and and that goes towards uh, a lot of the these questions, right? Of what were meant to be expressive rights for for people, for artists, for political sake? How much do those uh, apply to to organizations when what they're behaving in is either a commercial act explicitly or an act for which they're paid? And this is exactly you know an, an area that the Supreme Court has really waded into in the last decade, and I think will continue to be pretty fruitful. Well, okay, no, so that's that's our legal <laughs> our legal battle of the day. Uh, when did you decide to say, "Hey, I hate this. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna write for, for major TV shows from now on"? And how did that happen? You you basically left the uh, you know you were probably on track to being like one of the top lawyers around because of the cases you were involved in. You could have gone in any direction possible, like banking, hedge funds, being a top lawyer, being federal, being corporate, whatever. And you said, screw it, I'm going to start at the bottom in a totally different field I've never done before. <laughs> I don't think I got so deep into it. That's that's one part of it. Uh, I think I'm unhappy. Um, I mean, I think there are some people who, who, who you know, who, who feel stuck, who have a lot of the problems that I didn't. They, um, they already have a wife, kids, a mortgage, you know, just just a lot of uh, responsibilities that I that I didn't have. Where where I was was, you know, I spent all of law school kind of in this battle with myself. Uh, do I want to be pursuing something more in the uh, in the arts and entertainment field, or do I want to be here in law? And so, so you from from the beginning, you felt that you felt that dichotomy inside yourself. Yeah, because I I was already thinking about and starting to pursue uh, work in the theater before uh, before law school. When I went to law school, I, I had this idea in my head, which uh, I had been told by a couple of people, if you can. Do anything in your life other than work in the arts and be happy, do that. So when I entered law school, uh, I decided I was going to give up everything else, uh, just quit it cold turkey, do nothing but focus on the law. And I was able to make it three months. And then the first uh, winter break, uh, I wrote and directed something. And so after that moment, I realized, okay, directing was something I couldn't do while I was in law school just because of the sheer uh, you know, commitment to the hours that would require, but I could spend more and more time writing. So by the end of law school, I was sort of faced with you know the decision. I, I had a job already waiting at me, waiting at a law firm because that's you know at least then was the notion of of how things went. Right, the summer after your first year at, a, at law school, you went and you sort of interned at a uh, sorry after your second year, you went and interned at a firm, and then you know unless you did something spectacularly urban legend setting bad, uh, you were offered a job back there. Um, so so that's what had happened. I knew I had this job waiting for me, and I was thinking about whether I really wanted. To, to go and accept it or whether I wanted to just branch off entirely and work in the arts. And so the, the summer after I graduated law school, uh, I started to have this really crazy thought of like, wait a second, what if I did go into the arts and what if I went into TV and film? Which was this thought I'd never had before because it had all been about theater for me. And TV and film at the time, because of shows like Mad Men and The Good Wife, uh, I was seeing that you know, there, there was a richness to the storytelling. There was an ability to invest in, in characters over a long form period of time. And there was also this promise of a writing staff, this notion of a room of people working to make each other's stuff better that really appealed to me. And so- I, I always wondered about that. Yeah. Like novels are written by one person. Mm -hmm. 
Why are TV shows written by writing rooms, like a whole staff of people? I mean, traditionally, it's because you were cranking out 35 episodes, right? right. And even in, even in modern days when it went down, 28, 27, 24, you know, for a long time, 12. it settled on 22. So when you're doing 22 episodes, right, every two weeks, you have a new episode out there. Trying to do that with you know one or two people is is pretty impossible. People have done it. Um, I mean, Aaron Sorkin did it um, on on West Wing and Sports Night to some extent, but even he had a, a room of people uh, at least sort of pitching the the ideas um, and sort of helping him you know uh, generate some of the material that he would then actually go and execute. But yeah, twenty two uh, or more is a lot for one person to do. And even even like I uh, like take a show like Seinfeld. There was a writing staff, but still it seemed like, or at least the story goes, Seinfeld and Larry David would end up uh, rewriting every episode and just doing their own thing. I mean, it's interesting. Seinfeld's had one of the most impressive coaching trees of any show. I mean, you look at those writers, you know, the, the careers they've gone on to have, obviously a ton of them writing for other shows and some of the most successful shows of all time, but also just, um, you know, the people who went over to Curb Your Enthusiasm, Reitberg, Mandel, Schaefer, uh, and spent a lot of time with him there. They went on to have, you know... Uh, Berg co-runs Silicon Valley. Um, Mandel took over running Veep. Schaefer, uh, you know, ran, um, had, uh, co-created the League with his wife. And those shows, especially, um, you know, the League uh, and uh, and Silicon Valley, have a structure that's incredibly like the Curb structure, which is incredibly like the Seinfeld structure. Which is that you have uh, multiple storylines around the main characters. Every character is sort of fed for every character in the show is sort of fed for that every episode, and then somehow coincidentally or somehow all the plot lines intertwine at the end and get settled. Absolutely, and so each of them have a little bit of a different flavor to it, right? I mean, there's something a little bit more dyspeptic about Curb. There's something a little bit more um, sophomoric in the best way, um, and sort of dirty about the league. Um, and you know, Silicon Valley is kind of the the fusion of that sensibility with uh, I, I don't know a little bit of a little bit of nerd humor in there too, but. Um, yeah, you see all those people and you just wonder. I mean, obviously, there's an incredible genius that, um, you know, that, that, that Seinfeld and Larry David have, but each of those people, I mean, what were they bringing to it in terms of the structure? What were they bringing to it in terms of their personal stories? I mean, I think, uh, you know, Festivus is, uh, uh, is famously uh, O'Keefe's story. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of those things that I think came from their own lives in there too. And so, But, but, but in terms yeah. of like leadership, like it seems like, uh, Seinfeld and, and maybe even more so Larry David, given the continue, you know, his continued success with Curb Your Enthusiasm, it seems like they were real leaders. They were like coaches and leaders. Like they 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 brought out the best in the actors. They brought out the best in the writers. So everyone went on to like bigger and better. You know, mostly. Like what do you, what do you hope- think? What do you think they brought to the table? Not in terms of like writing skill, but in terms of like leadership skill. Yeah, that would be that would be really hard for me to say. I mean, it it seems like uh, you know on. Uh, on on TV, not only is uh, every unhappy show, you know, uh, unhappy in its own way. I think every happy show is happy in its own way. So, uh, you know, I've I've heard people speculate about shows, uh, you know, in, in the media that you know I I've been on behind the scenes, and the speculations are almost always pretty far off. It's hard to just capture the way people are when the when the kind of the lights are off. So it's 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 hard for me to know exactly what sort of went on in those in those gaps. But but yeah, it's the the behind the scenes show is 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 kind of a fascinating one as well. So you're starting to consider TV mm-hmm. and, you know, entertainment, but you're still at the law firm, you're making good money, you see a path in front of you that's probably pretty huge and enormous. What's what's the tipping point? How do you convince yourself that this is a good decision when it's when it's 99% chance it's probably a bad decision. 
or at least it's a scary one. So part of that was, at least at that point in time in my life, almost anything I had really tried to do and, and really tried to do it full out, I'd done for better or worse. And so that gives you sort of an inappropriate level of confidence. And I think that inappropriate level of confidence is incredibly useful in show business. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I had sort of, so I said um, before, I was starting to think about TV and film as, as a route and I just didn't know how to actually do it. And I've been working on a play um, that had originated with, um, uh, in part with Michael Patrick King. Michael Patrick King was uh, sort of the major creative force behind uh, Sex in the City. And there was this play, uh, this musical actually, that he had uh, shepherded uh, by an amazing writer named Nancy Shane. Uh, and uh, it came to be called Marcy in the Galaxy. They'd worked on earlier versions of this in a, a wonderful off-Broadway theater company I was uh, the literary manager of called uh, Transport Group. Uh, we decided to do the show. Uh, Michael wasn't able to continue on with it because he was actually directing the Sex in the City movie at that time, but he stayed involved where he could. Uh, and one time he came to a rehearsal and afterwards I was talking to him he was getting to know me a little bit and it's like you know the standard hey kid what are you what are you doing here what are you gonna do with your life and I said well I was just kind of thinking a little bit about TV how does one get into that it was just such and sort of innocent offhand question he said well the first thing you do is write a spec script I'm like yeah of course obviously what is a spec script I had no idea and he explained to me what uh, was the answer at the time, which was a spec script, was uh, an example of an existing show, which isn't necessarily true anymore. Now most people sort of write pilots on spec and that's how you get staffed. But that was kind of the last moment when what you would do is you would write something that's already on the air that would show that you could actually figure it out. So um, when I graduated law school, after the, the summer after you graduate, most people go insane studying for the bar exam. They take something called Barbary. It's, you know, whatever it is, six, eight hours a day for several weeks. I didn't do that. I never went to my Barbary class. Uh, what I did instead was I sat down at a desk every single day and I wrote a script. You wrote, uh, you were working on one script? Or? I wrote one script. I spent whatever that was, six weeks writing one script. It was and was it, a, was it a, a, a script of an existing show or was it your own? It was a script of an existing show. It was Boston Legal uh, from David E. Kelly. Uh, the, and you know somebody who had been a tremendous influence on my writing up to that point in time. And I just spent every day trying to write as if writing were a job. And so at the end of those six weeks, I had this script. Um, it was maybe two, three weeks before the bar exam. I studied like hell at that point, sort of crammed for the bar, took the bar, and then I showed up to work at my law firm. I have a job, I have a script, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then the first week I was there, uh, a very lucky thing happened. Layman went under. The street went up in flames. And so basically me and the people who shorted the market, right? It's, it's me and the big short had a good week. Um, because while everyone was running around, oh my God, there isn't 100 hours of, of work a week. How am I supposed to keep my job? How am I going to justify my existence? I said, this is great. There isn't 100 hours of work a week. And so I had the time to write. I had the time to keep writing and sort of build up a little bit of, uh, of a quiver. And on top of that, I had the time to go and actually take meetings because we got in those days uh, four weeks uh, vacation a year, right? One a quarter. Nobody would ever take that because they were afraid if they took that much, they wouldn't look dedicated. Uh, I didn't care. Uh, I didn't care that much because we had the, you know, I was already thinking about leaving and I knew that um, this was kind of a really good moment with the free time that we just naturally had to take advantage of that. And so the next step was figuring out, I have this script, what do I do with it? Who do I give it to? And so I just said, you know what? 
I'm looking out the window. I'm looking, I'm looking out and seeing that there are TV shows being shot here in New York, right? Ugly Betty is being shot here. Uh, Law and Order is being shot here. There's got to be some way to get on those shows. And so I went up and literally talked to somebody working on one of them and said, can I work what, here? What do you mean? Like you, you, you saw people shooting on a yes. set? Yeah, soft people shooting on a set on uh, Cooper uh, Cooper Square. Can I go work on the show? How does one work on the show? Where's the writer's room for the show? Can I go apply for a job? How, the, who, how did you know even who to talk to on the set? Like, oh, I'm sure I was talking to the most ridiculous person. I had no idea. No idea. Uh, I, I just just did it. And what somebody said is, no, the writer's room is in LA. And I thought, oh, huh, that's weird. Uh, and then when I actually did a little bit of research into it, I discovered pretty much all the writer's rooms were in LA. And so what I started doing was something more systematic than just reaching out to people on the street. I started kind of trying to reach out to people um, kind of as a network. So what I did was a uh, big spreadsheet guy, built myself a spreadsheet, and I just populated it with anyone I could possibly reach out to. And so this became a combination of anyone I worked with in theater who would give me a connection to somebody uh, in LA. Anyone uh, I had went to college with who had moved out to LA. And then on top of that, I went to college alumni list, just did a ton of different searches, um, sort of like figured out that a lot of people who lived in, in LA in the film business didn't necessarily want to advertise that on the alumni network and make it super obvious to find them. But also, if you you know, played around with kind of their search functions. You could figure it out and read between the lines. So I created basically a hundred, a uh, hundred, you know, people in my spreadsheet, and I reached out to them. If you I, hadn't gone to Harvard, which obviously has huge connections in LA, yeah, what would you have done? I mean, I think there are a lot of other schools. First of all, that do have a huge appeal out there, right? I mean, ranging from Syracuse to Emerson to Northwestern and on. But for those where you don't have that kind of alumni network, there's still going to be some sort of a common point you can find with with anybody, right? right? Whether it's geographically where you're from or just... Um, you know, what your father did or what your favorite movie was. I mean, I would have just done research on, on people and found what those points of commonality was and, and reached out because it's a cold email, right? You're cold calling. And when you're cold calling, any little nudge, any reason they should open that email from you helps. Anything that doesn't make it look like a form, anything that reminds them that they were once in your place of not knowing anything and desperately needing a break. So that's what I did. I sent out maybe a hundred emails to people. And would the emails include your spec script? Never. No, I would never do that. Uh, I knew uh, sort of instinctively, and then people sort of reinforce this, don't don't ask for that right out of the, right out of the gate. What would your email look like? Uh, what my email looked like is I would explain to someone who I was. I would explain to them some form of connection. Uh, I would tell them, and all this was honestly, you know, why um, their story or their journey or their work meant something to me. And in every case, I'd sort of done, if I didn't already know who the person was, done the research to it. And then I would sort of ask them just for a conversation. That's really what I wanted. Would you meet with me in person or would you get on the phone with me or would you just, you know, share any wisdom with me? And so I was surprised that the yield of it was actually quite higher than I expected. It was about 20%. Uh, and then with those 20% who had actually talked to me, then depending on the person, I might ask for a second thing, whether it was to maybe at that point to read me or potentially just to introduce me to somebody else who might be more directly in my field or more directly able to sort of advise me. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Would you ever feel like you needed to offer something instead of, hey, just can you introduce me? Like, would you try to offer some value to whoever you're writing to? And, I mean, and the value might be like if they were a writer for a show, you could have said, "Oh, did you think about trying this for for this idea?" Or I don't know, I don't know what things of value you would offer. But I mean, honestly, the value I was I was offering was essentially the opportunity to help me. <laughs> that was the the opportunity to. But to most be, people are not going to respond to that. I, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how many people actually are respond to the idea of like, "Oh, can I?" pay this forward? Can I help somebody who's, you know, just starting out, somebody who is not as uh, as successful as I am or I as I would feel they get those emails all the time though. So that's why it's few and far between that they would actually open them and read them and then help them. I mean, I get those emails. Uh, it's in, on this side. I get those emails a lot, and I respond to most of them. Hmm. Like, if I feel like that person uh, is is genuine in their desire, and they've put in the effort of, you know, it's it's not just a form letter, uh, and I can sort of tell, like, no, 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 this matters to them. Uh, then, yeah, I, I I do put that in, and and just this sort of awareness that that look, you do need somebody to help you at some point in time. You do need somebody to open a door and to and to mentor you and and to sort of encourage a future generation of people to to do this. So, I mean, obviously, over time, I've been able to offer them more things than that. But on the first time, I mean, even saying something like, oh, I'll come in and I'll solve your show for you. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Right. It just, it, it it would sound arrogant and it would also be a potential legal problem because, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times they can't even take sort of submissions or things like that from somebody who's, who's not on the staff. Um, I mean, I think what what helped is that I was I was asking sort of the minimum amount. I wasn't asking somebody to read my script. I wasn't asking them to get me a job. I was just asking to talk. And so, like I said, 20% was the initial yield, but I was able to sort of build off of that through those conversations uh, to get a couple of reads and to get a couple of introductions. And what I would do is I would follow up too. I would like put it in my spreadsheet. This day is the day when I contacted somebody. And then I would follow up again, you know, after a certain period of time and sort of set this rule for myself that, you know, I can contact somebody three times. So it was like so. So just to summarize, it's like in this first stage, it's a yeah, point yeah. of commonality, um, which you would kind of use to sort of b- break through the ice a little bit mm-hmm. uh, from a stranger. And then there's the um, ask for as small a thing as possible, even if it's just a conversation or an intro or whatever. 
And then the third thing, which you just said- Was following up. Following up, yeah. So keeping track of everything with the spreadsheet and then following up. And I, and I found the following up is, is invaluable and I've seen that on, on this side of it as well. You know, often the, the not responding to somebody is just because you're in the middle of running from the writer's room to editing to set to a million other things and it's just not a high priority. And if you didn't respond that second, you're going to absolutely forget about it. Mm-hmm. And if the person who wrote you forgets about it too, it just doesn't seem like they, it potentially mattered to them enough that really you needed to spend the time doing this. Um, but the people I followed up with you know, a couple of times, some of them you know, that really wound up uh, making a big difference. And so, so what happened next? Like what was, the, what was sort of the, the break? So what I would do is I would start coming out to LA. I would schedule um, a week of vacation and I would just sit in a room with anyone who would talk to me, whether they were um, an executive, an agent, an actor, a director, an assistant, uh, just anyone who could tell me about the industry and make some connections. And the sort of the... you know, I, I like to say you can tell the story a bunch of different ways, right? You can tell it through, I met all of these different people um, and, you know, only one of them helped. So, you know, which is would, you know, initially, which is kind of the true story, right? On, in one sense, but the other stories you could tell it like, you know, like Star Wars, like you had the perfect little shot that made it through and all you need is that one. And so, so for me, the sort of initial, the first mover was um, a guy named Gen Maynard, uh, often referred to as the general. And Gen was, uh, somebody can fact check this, but I believe the first, uh, uh, executive, first reality executive in the history of television. Mm. And Gen had, as an assistant, uh, brought in a show called uh, The Amazing Race. And then he brought in a show called Survivor. And then he moved over to the uh, dramatic, sort of the, the narrative, the scripted side, and then developed a show called CSI. So mm. Gen had a very good moment. What, 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 like he worked for a network? He worked for CBS. Mm. Uh, first a production company, I believe, and then he worked for CBS and then later a few other places. Uh, and I just happened to call Gen at a, or reach out to Gen at a moment where he, I think, was just sort of exiting his, his network deal and so had a little bit of time, just very fortuitous that my email hit him at the right moment. And so he, I think this is a, a consequence, though, of writing to a lot of people. Absolutely. So if you write to 100 people, one of them will have be in their fortuitous moment. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you look at sort of the, the network of these, and I can sort of double back later, but I, I happened to catch Gen in this moment. Uh, we got on the phone, uh, and it was... It was like he was in a 1940s hard-boiled thriller, right? He was just, he was like, who is this? Who are you? Where are you? What's going on? And I'm like, oh, uh, hi. And he's like, uh, where are you? I'm like, New York. He's like, I was in New York. I had to quit and move out to LA. Do you have a job? Yeah. Are you making any money? Yeah. Oh, they're really going to hate you. No one's going to care. Do you have a script? Yeah. Nobody wants to read it. I'm like, okay. He's like, send it to me. And then that was the whole call. It was just dizzying. And I and sent him the, the script. script. He liked the script. A week later, I got an email back, terse, perfect. It just said, this is good enough to get a job. Call me when you're out here. Hmm. So I just booked a trip. I just booked a trip that day. And when I got out, I um, had uh, I had coffee with him at the Saddle Ranch on the Sunset Strip. For those of you who spend time in LA, that's ridiculous and wonderful. Uh, and at that meeting, uh, Gen said, okay, I'm setting, uh, I'm setting two meetings for you while you're out here. Let's just see how you do. And he sent me two meetings, uh, one of which uh, uh, was with a, a guy named uh, Josh Berman, uh, whom uh, I believe I reminded him of in some sense, because Josh uh, had also gone to law school, uh, also kind of, um, you know, sort of departed from that path. And he 
had just, uh, he had initially been an executive, then he became a writer, and he had just created a television show called Drop Dead Diva. And so I met with Josh about a month after that show had been picked up. He had already hired people, um, but he read my script, and it turned out that his first stuff was off of, um, he created a video that was based on Ally McBeal, and then he wrote a spec episode of The Practice. And so here I was also with a David E. Kelly spec script and a similar background, and he said, this is great. Uh, if you had come here a month ago, I would have hired you. I don't know if any jobs at the moment, but stay in touch. And I thought to myself, what a horrible thing to say. Because if he was lying to me, that's so mean. And if he was telling the truth, that's so mean. Um, and I stayed in touch. And a few months later, I was coming back to LA. I reached out to him and he's like, I'm too busy. He was in the middle of making the show. I'm too busy, but stay in touch. Um, and then the fall happened. His show got a pickup for another season and I sent him an email, congratulations. And he wrote back, if I offered you a job, would you take it? Mm. I said, yes. Sent him my resume again, which he asked for. And then he never wrote back. And I was sitting there in my office. At this point in time, I'd been a lawyer for a little over... Um, maybe 15, 16 months at this point in time. I, uh, and I was at my office down uh, in the financial district. I'm like, what just happened? And as the days went by, I'm waiting for this email for him. I never got an email. And I'm like, do I have a job? Do I not have a job? What is my life? Where do I live? And so I just emailed him and said, I'm doing this again. I'm coming out to LA, booked another trip. Um, uh, you know, And I obviously made it sound like I was out there for other business and said, hey, while I'm out here, do you want to meet? Uh, and uh, he said, yeah, of course. And uh, Monday uh, came around. We were supposed to meet. He bumped it to the next day. He bumped it to the next day. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. This is really not, uh, this is not a high priority. And then I showed up and it was not just him, but it was uh, actually the other executive producer on the show. And I realized, oh, that's why this is bumped. This is actually like a real job interview and you got everyone together for it. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to, to book it. And by the time I went home from LA, uh, I had landed a job as not a writer, but a writer's assistant. I had landed a, a job that was a 90% pay cut from being a lawyer, and I was so happy about it. That's, that's a really great story. I mean, there's so many lessons to be learned, but I think also an important one is people don't realize the importance of when someone says, let me know if you're ever at X, just go to X and say, oh, I was coming here anyway. <laughs> Like there's kind of like this backdoor way of because uh, if you had just waited for an opportunity to be in LA, you never would have been there. You had to kind of if, as soon as the door was open, you kind of had to go through that door. Yeah, there, I mean, look, there's obviously a fine line between being a creepy stalker and following up. And if you can't find that line, you're probably not going to have a great career. Um, but the but the persistence certainly paid off, and as well as you know that initial group of people I I contacted. I mean, what's really funny about it is, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't wind up exactly as I thought. You know, Gen was somebody who was not primarily known for scripted TV, and yet that wound up with my first job in scripted TV. Another guy uh, whom I contacted, and we had like a lovely lunch together that kind of led nowhere, and we stayed in touch. Like years later, he wound up offering me a job, which I don't think you know. I don't think we would have just known to stay in touch or known each other if I hadn't met him in that in those first circumstances. And you know, somebody else I'd met who was also slightly dismissive at first um, wound up 
similarly reading my script and gave me some incredible notes on it. And those like incredible what? notes um, actually helped make it stronger. And it was that stronger version that um, the Josh Berman uh, read and hired me off of. So who knows, maybe if I hadn't gotten those, those notes, it wouldn't have been there. So these things do kind of have a, have a way of coming together. Well, what were some of those notes that made it stronger? Uh, the notes were at the time. So I was really trying to hew very closely to the way the TV show worked. And so I had written this episode um, and I'm trying to think what year this is. This is probably 2007 when I wrote it. And so uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the tribunals that were uh, springing up to deal with some of the consequences of our foreign wars. And so I had wrote, written this case about uh, in, in the show about an American student who was arrested abroad in Iraq and being charged in this Iraqi court, which the Iraqi legal system was sort of under our extreme guidance, but there was a real question of whether it was a truly independent legal system or, or what. And so I wrote this, this case where, you know, um, it was all about that, but it was done in Massachusetts, in Boston court, you know, in federal court and having this argument about this kid who was around the world. And the person I spoke to said, well, why don't you just go to Iraq? Why don't the characters go to Iraq? Isn't that going to be a lot more dramatic? And I had thought, oh, well, the show would never do that because that just would sort of break the framework of the show and that would be a little bit too expensive. And he's like, but this isn't an actual episode of the show. You've already shown you can write an actual episode of the show, but why not make it more dramatic? Why not make the most dramatic version of this possible? And also, why not make it a little bit special to stand out from the pile? And I'm like, right, those are really good ideas. And it you know, reminded me of the difference of thinking like a producer versus thinking purely like a writer. And so there are times when you're writing a script where, you know, like right now, if I'm writing a script that I know in two weeks we have to go shoot, then I do have to think about producibility and I have to think about the scale and the expense and not writing ridiculous things. I'm going to have to scale back later because it would just never happen on the timeline or budget. But if you're writing something that's purely a spec script that's meant to get you a job or an agent that you think is unlikely to be produced, or that's just really the pipe dream, write it as imaginatively and as wonderfully as possible. Do everything to show off every tool in your book and to get their attention. Although although you thinking this is not within the framework of the show, that's reasonable too, because it shows that you respect, you. if you are writing a spec script, it shows you do understand and respect the framework of how they produce their show. Absolutely, and he'd, and he'd seen that and he thought, no, 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 you've shown enough of that elsewhere. If you make some of these changes, it's just going to amp up the drama and make it more special. Uh, and he was, he was 100% right, it made it a stronger, uh, it made it a stronger sample. So, so, okay, so now you're on uh, Drop Dead Divas. Drop Dead Diva. And uh, Drop Dead Diva, and that show wasn't the longest lasting show in history. That show ran six years. It was canceled it, twice and kept coming back from the dead, much really? like the lean character. I didn't know that. And and uh, But then you ended up, where'd you go next? Uh, my next show was uh, The Newsroom. Which is a huge HBO show. Like it sort of feels like you had this like gifted career, but like how did you go from like uh, Drop Dead Diva to The Newsroom? Uh, I was on Drop Dead Diva for, for two years. And while I was there, uh, I wrote a movie uh, called uh, Lunch Money with a, with a friend of mine, uh, Graham Sack. And that movie um, wound up doing well in a, in a host of competitions. Um, and uh, The movie itself or the script? The script. The, the movie has yet to be made. Uh, the, the movie... Um, the movie was uh, actually about the fact that both Graham and I, uh, who we did uh, college theater together, we had wound up in sort of the New York financial world in one way or another, and we're both there during during the crash. Me directly, uh, you know, at, at a law firm, him at uh, at Morgan Stanley, and so we were sort of thinking about the the ways in which this thing was just kind of a grand. Uh, 
comedy in, in a certain respect that we weren't sort of seeing the media react to. So uh, the whole idea was to reset it as a high school comedy. So it's all about sort of a Ferris Bueller, freewheeling kid who happens to uh, get the kids in his school to gamble on academic grades and off of that winds up with grade-backed securities that crash the school. So it's this, you know, obviously, a, a, you know, an allegory about what happened, but it's also just really kind of this fun uh, teenage coming-of-age uh, comedy very much. It's like somewhere between like John Hughes and Superbad. So we wrote that this That sounds like thing. a great idea, actually. It's a super, super fun movie. Um, and it wound up doing really well, this, the screenplay of it, in a, in a bunch of competitions. And so um, at the time, I had spent two seasons on Drop Dead Diva. I had written uh, one episode of the show, and I'd gotten an agent. So... Um, you know, it, it turned out that just in the history of that show, for whatever reason, uh, some shows tend to promote people, some shows don't tend to promote people. Uh, and that was a show where they just, for whatever reason, didn't didn't promote people. And it became clear that if I came back, it would be the same situation. I'd still be the writer's assistant and I, I wouldn't be a staff writer, which is the sort of entry rung uh, for a writing job. And, you know... Um, I'd like to think I would have had the confidence otherwise to say I'm walking out the door, but I think also because I had this movie starting to do well, it really bolstered me to be able to say, yeah, um, I just need to bet on myself. I, I need to keep betting on myself. You know, that's that's what I did when I when I left my job at the law firm. That's when I did when I came out here, and so I got to do that again. So so that's what I did. I left the show and spent you know several months uh, writing, starting another screenplay, uh, and then one day I read a story uh, in the uh, God I forget what online paper it was, but in one of the online uh, rags of the entertainment industry, its story said uh, after the first season of the newsroom, Sorkin fires entire staff except girlfriend. Uh, and as it turned out, um, that wasn't true. Almost no part of that was true. Um, but, you know, not all the uh, entertainment headlines are true. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know that. All I knew was that uh, Aaron Sorkin, a, a writer that I uh, that I loved, whose work I knew inside out, and who had a TV show, The Newsroom, the first season of which I really, really enjoyed, uh, apparently needed writers. And I was a writer who needed work, so clearly we should meet. And I called up my agent and I said, get me into a room with him. I don't know how you do it. Just get me into a room with him. And a couple of things, you know, luckily happened to make that possible. Uh, one is that my agent had just moved agencies uh, and by virtue of that had much more freedom to operate. It was a little bit more of a decentralized system so he didn't have to submit everything through his boss and have his boss aggregate everything from the department and decide, oh, who is this kid without a... a as you know, that many writing credits because if I'd been at the first agency, they probably would have pulled me out of the pile and said, nope, can't do it. He's not experienced enough. Um, so that was one thing is that my agent was able to operate. And the other thing was that I had just written a script um, that my agent, in fact, did not um, love. My manager really didn't love. And I said, look, I know you guys uh, are not the biggest fans of this thing. I love this thing, and I can promise you that uh, Aaron's going to love it too. So send Is this it, thing. What was it, this script? Was not the the movie script? No, this was uh, a TV pilot uh, called The Main Stem, and it was all about the world of Broadway uh, in the 1950s. Right, coming back full circle uh, to sort of my first love, and so it was uh, Broadway, the year 1950, kind of the last minute that New York, uh, what that that sort of the theater scene was the center of New York. New York was the center of American culture. Uh, deals with these people who all kind of have nested layers of identity. All of them are play acting uh, in their work, play acting in their private lives. Uh, and it, you know, it, it was a script that in a way has kind of been my uh, personal madman in the sense that you know, uh, Matt Weiner carried that script around for a number of years before it was actually made. Uh, and it just wound up being uh, 
uh, I've heard the thing that got him on The Sopranos and got him a lot of other stuff. And for me, this was the thing that sure enough uh, got me in that room and booked that job and actually also wound up booking the, the good wife job. So it's been, uh, it's just been the piece of material that, that gets me work so far. So, so with Aaron Sorkin in the newsroom, so you get, so you meet him yep. and he likes, I guess, the script. Does, how does he decide to hire a writer? Because every, like every character, it seems, is like speaking in his voice, but yeah. just switching characters around. Meeting Aaron was actually one of the, I mean, that that interview is the strangest interview I've ever had for a show, which was kind of great because I, I came up to this uh, office, kind of a bungalow on the Sunset Gower lot, right across from where we shot the show, and I come up and I was expecting to have you know uh, an assistant or somebody greet me outside. Nobody greets me. Instead, I can just walk right up to the room where I can hear the previous interview is going on. And I hear this roar of laughter from inside the room, which lets me know not only is this guy killing, but also that laughter was not the laughter of one person or two people. It was like seven people laughing. Which is like, how many people are in that fucking room? That's not, I mean, normally an interview for a job on a show is two people. And um, so anyway, I sit out there waiting and I hadn't been nervous. And I finally started to get a little bit nervous. And then the guy comes out of the room and then a minute later, they come and ask me to come into the room. And sure enough, it was Aaron along with the returning writers on the show. Because again, hadn't fired the entire writing staff. There were a bunch of returning writers. And he included them all in this process. And the moment I walked in and sort of met Aaron was very strange. I'd been nervous. And then I just instantly got very calm. I just felt like on some level... Um, we just kind of recognized each other. It was incredibly strange. We just fell into like a very easy rapport talking about the show and current events and sort of philosophies. Um, and then I wound up doing something which I've, I've heard many times people tell you not to do. Uh, I pitched a story. I pitched a story for the newsroom and then he sort of pitched back at me. And we kind of wound up having this little ripping off mini, of your pitch. Yeah, we kind of had this like little mini work session in the room together, and it went really well. At the end of it, he, I think, literally what he said was, uh, "Adam, you can go, uh, go tell your agents, go tell everyone else. Uh, this went really well. This went really well." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. Yeah, you'll be hearing from us soon." And I walked out of there with the thing of like, "Oh, well, if I didn't get this job." I don't know what getting a job is. Um, and then it turned out I did get it, but I didn't hear uh, for, for another two weeks. So sometimes, you know, even when you get it, you got to wait a little while to find out. And it, it seems like, so just, I mean, I watched all of the newsroom. I think I've probably watched every, all of every series that you've worked on, except for Drop Dead Diva. I didn't, I didn't Come back. There's a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> I will. Ben uh, I didn't, I didn't ben hear Feldman. from it. I didn't hear about it even until preparing for you. But, um, the newsroom and just in general his stuff like mm -hmm. West Wing, Sports Night, uh, what was one Studio Sixty? Studio Sixty on Sunset Strip, which sure. I love that show. Every every he has this such a distinctive writing voice. He's probably the one uh, TV writer you would you would say that's Aaron Sorkin just from how the characters are acting and from how the script's written. Like I don't I can't think of any other TV writer with such a distinctive writing style. And uh, how does he do it? Like what 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 makes it, I don't know, it's not like what makes it distinctive, but why does he do it that way? Like, does he, it comes across in such an unusual way. I mean, I, first, I just might, I might take a slight issue that other people don't have that. I think there are other, there are other people from, uh, from David E. Kelly to, um, 
you know, to Koppelman and Levine, to, to plenty of other people out there who do, I think, have kind of a recognizable voice. Um, but Aaron's is certainly clear and pure and his own. All right, um, let's just say it's like unusually Aaron Sorkin. Sure. I mean, I, I think what's... I think what's really interesting is that that Aaron doesn't feel you know the the need to to try to create something to create something that is in and of other people's expectations particularly it's his it's his voice it's how he sees the world it's the stories he wants to tell and there are rhythms that he has honed uh in his personal life through you know writing for the stage film TV all of it that just work I mean it's 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 sort of a um it's it's like at times there's something vaudevillian about it at times there's something that feels like a a good litigator's patter i mean it's yeah like a, put it this way you could write a caricature of like a parody many of, many, of, many people have right so so when you're writing for him and you have to put yourself kind of in his head and his writing voice what what are you doing differently than let's say for other writers With you have to Aaron, write like very fast somehow, or the words have to come out very fast in every character's voice. No, you're not. You're not doing any of that, and I think he's aware that if people tried to do that, uh, you know, it, it would be a little bit of a waste of everybody's time. Because because here's the thing: I think the best TV shows um, probably work off of the ones that have writing staffs work off of some acknowledgement that people have different skill sets or different things they can bring to it, and that it might be a little bit of a duplication of energy to have everybody sit around writing Aaron Sorkin patter at him as fast as humanly possible. He can do that, and he can do it. I'm going to guess better than you or I can. So he doesn't really need that. Um, what 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 he needs, or at least what he needed at the time, was at that point in time, Aaron had written what four seasons of The West Wing, two seasons of um, Sports Night, one season of Studio sixty, right? So he's written whatever that is, 154 ad the first seasons of, of, of Newsroom. I don't know. Maybe he's written 164 episodes uh, of of TV at this point in time. So what what Aaron Sorkin needed was just some more ideas, just some more perspectives, just a lot of really intelligent people in a room arguing with each other and sharing their idiosyncratic portraits and so that he could see from moments like, okay, this is an area to get into. This is a conflict I can I can build on. And so, you know, that that's primarily, uh, at least on Newsroom, what, what he was looking for us to do. And then, um, so you went from that to, I guess, you know, that ran a few seasons, then The Good Wife, um, I was on Newsroom. In between, I was on a, uh, a show called State of Affairs on NBC, which was uh, one of Katie Heigl's much uh, sort of buoyed um, returns to returns to television. Uh, that one kind of uh, based on a uh, story of central intelligence agencies' uh, briefers to the to the president. Uh, so I spent there. That, that lasted uh, only a season. So it's not all the name brand ones. There was something else in there. Uh, we worked hard on that one. Didn't last. Uh, and then from that, I was on to, uh, on to Good Wife, yeah. Were we ever worried, like like when State of Affairs got canceled? Were we ever worried? Oh, that's that's it. I'm I'm going. I'm, I'm over. No. Or you always had that confidence that you'd find the next thing. Yeah. I, for for better or worse, again, I've just um, and I and it's it's interesting. I I think when you look at your career on paper, it looks very different than it than it feels at the time. At the time, there were already always so many different things. Going on, you know, there are, there are movies, there are pilots, there there are things that you're trying to shepherd in various ways. You're just working as hard as you can on all the fronts, and just sort of believing that some or all of them are gonna are are gonna pay off. And so, you know, if a if a TV similar show, to investing, I would say it is. It is very similar to investing. Um, and I, and I think you know, um, 
you know, early on I spoke um, spoke to a writer slash executive who had this belief that you know always have at least three projects going and preferably in different phases of of development. So, so like when you were done with State Affairs, what projects did you have going? Um, I had a pilot I was writing. I had a pilot I was pitching. Uh, I had a movie that. Um, uh, was getting ready to to be sold. So I, I just had a bunch of different things happening. So I sort of had the belief, look, one of these things will hopefully happen. If one of these things doesn't happen, I'll write something else. I'll staff on something else. Something else will will come along. I Yeah, I, I, I think it's as long as you're not just sort of waiting for the for the universe to find you, if you are actually creating material, I, I think you're just giving yourself a little bit going back to the idea of the spreadsheet and contacting a million people, you know, give yourself as many possible chances to to succeed. And I think um, one thing I would add to that too is also, um, and for me, it was about not trying to write what I thought the market wanted, not trying to say, okay, this year everyone wants doctor shows or this year everyone wants cop shows. I think people always, there's always differing advice because on the one hand, you do want to write Broadly, so a lot of people would like it. Like, there's a lot, there's a ton of cop shows out there. Mm-hmm. So it seems like if you uh, are just pitching a random show and you're from the middle of nowhere, pitching a cop show is not the worst idea because there's tons of cop shows on. I and at the same time, people say, "No, no, no, don't write what everyone else is writing." Yeah, I think it's a pretty bad idea. I really do. Uh, I think that when you're when you're starting out, that people are just desperate to to put you in a box as easily as possible. And so I think to help yourself, it really makes sense to make the box that you're going to be most comfortable living in. Yeah. And to sort of unify the parts of yourself that exist to a dis, to to a person who doesn't know you very well, right? And when I say the parts of yourself, I mean your resume your script, and kind of how you present in person. So initially, if you can kind of unify those things where they all make a story that makes sense, because these people aren't going to spend very much time with you or very much time thinking about you, when you can tell a story that makes sense, that really helps. So if you were a cop, right? If you were a cop in Chicago for several years and then you move out to LA and all you want to write about is the figure skating team, that's going to be a little bit strange to them and they're not going to know where to put you. And I'm not saying your figure skating show isn't great and isn't going to have a chance later, but initially taking advantage of your practical skills is probably a good thing that will get in the door. And once you're in the door, you can sort of show them what else you can do and and pursue some of your other stuff. And sort of proof of that, the first two things I wrote, the first spec was a legal spec. The first um, pilot I wrote was a legal pilot. I've never written a legal pilot or spec since then. Um, You know, uh, so they helped me get in the door, but I've also written things since then, you know, that are about the lottery that are about Broadway, that are about ice hockey, that are about you know movie stars, that are just about a lot of other things. So um, yes, writing um, writing what you are passionate about really really matters, and and you should do that. Um, and by the way, that echoes a lot about um, what Brian Koppelman has said the last time. He, he so Brian Koppelman the, and David Levine, the creator of Billions, where true. where you work, uh, the last podcast time Brian came on the podcast, he said, don't write what you know, write what you're passionate about. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think these are, 
are for me, I'm trying to separate two slightly different things. One is about that first moment of trying to, to get in that door. And that first moment of trying to get in the door, I think you should kind of leverage whatever it is about your kind of background and your resume. Um, and I'm talk, talking very specifically about Hollywood, but whatever kind of makes you unique and whatever sort of fits with your bio and will sort of help you get that representation, I, I would do that. And then beyond that, I would write whatever it is, and hopefully these things come together, whatever it is that you're most passionate about, whatever it is that you most want to read. It seems like, like so then you wrote on, on The Good Wife, you wrote on Billions, and both of them kind of intersect with your prior careers and, and so on. Yes. Um, uh, so we, we could, those are great shows, by the way. I love The Good Wife. Wonderful love show. Billions. Techn- I'm a technical advisor on Billions now, but I always loved the show even before then, and Brian's Me been too. on the podcast many times. Yes. Um, what makes a good TV show? Broad, the broadest question possible. <laughs> What is a TV show? <laughs> I mean, that is radically changing in this in in this moment. Um, my my wife is also a writer. She is writing for a TV show right now. That's uh, for Facebook. So does a TV show have to be on TV? F- Facebook is right, doing original TV shows. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Everyone is doing original TV shows. Um, but but to answer but to answer your question, I, I mean, I guess for me, what makes a great TV show is a story that I'm going to keep coming back to week in and week out. And as I come back to it, that story deepens and my knowledge of the character deepens. And each week I have more and more expectations about what that person is going to face and what that person is going to do. And those expectations are sometimes fulfilled and sometimes upended in wonderful and satisfying and surprising ways. And so that differentiates it for me from something like a movie, which is just, you know, um, a complete nugget that often I, I would spend more time reliving it, but I don't necessarily need to see further into that story or more instances of that story. So for for creators of TV shows, are they looking into kind of a, a premise where they can create a very... Uh, characters with a lot of depth that could grow through the story arc. I mean, I hope so. I, I mean, think it a used lot to be, by the way, are. there wouldn't be story arcs. So, like, take Seinfeld; it wouldn't necessarily be that the characters deepened each week. But now, on every successful series, the characters do deepen each week. Usually, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, a lot of debate out there the difference between us, you know, uh, the merits of a static versus a dynamic character. And certainly, yes, uh, traditionally what you would see was, yeah, the hero of your sitcom, every week he would be unhappy at work, he would bitch that his house, you know, had been taken over by the, by the kids, he would never change, right? Homer Simpson never really changes. Similar to your, you know, your cop hero every week is going to solve the case and come home uh, and, uh, and, you know, and have that beer and feel really good about it but then still a little bit unsatisfied because he'll never he'll never get there um but i think that for for me it's not just having him or her change over over time because some of these people ultimately you want to see that they don't change but you want to see them tested you want to see them over and over again go through these situations and you want to see how far can they bend like how far can they just sort of like push themselves because maybe ultimately they won't change but they'll have considered it or they'll be or they'll see instances of it or they'll really understand uh, you know the kind of choice they're making or the life they're or the life that they're living in I, I think for me kind of the least successful shows are the ones where plot takes either 
completely over or just takes random turns. So, where I feel like some integrity fundamentally of the characters that we've been asked to buy into or of the world that we've been asked to buy into doesn't change. I'm, I'm a big believer in I will follow your world wherever you take it if you respect your fundamental rules of storytelling. Oh, so what are fundamental rules of st storytelling? I mean, they... I'm, I'm saying your fundamental rules, so in your show, right? The, what you've asked me to believe. So, for example, I love, um, you know, soap operas like Desperate Housewives, and I love sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica. My all-time favorite show, right? Next to Billions. <laughs> uh, and I love, um, you know, I, I don't know what you can call Twin Peaks other than Twin Peaks. Uh, and those shows are wildly divergent, but I think they're true in that each of them sort of has a core vision of what the show is that they announce to you right off the bat and that they never violate as opposed to some other shows where you can sort of tell, oh, you needed more plot. So now you're going to have the character be someone that they're not and you're going to kind of pretend that it's character growth, mm -hmm. but it's not. You've just broken your show. So And, and, you th and the, the viewers can feel it even if they're not intellectually realizing that? That's that's my belief. That sometimes I, you'll, can you make an example, or you don't want to say an example. I kind of don't want to. I, okay. I I don't want to talk about the shows that I that I don't love or the shows that lost me over time. But I I think normally what'll often happen is there'll be a show that I really like for a few episodes or for a season, and then a couple seasons in or three seasons in, I'll see that that show just kind of turns in some way. That um, I, I just feel like they've they've yeah they've violated one of those rules of. Um, potentially something that the show tells you is smart, right? So the, a decision that a character makes, and it's not that the character was deluded. Everything in the world of the show told you that that decision was a smart decision. And then later, they've just changed their mind. Actually, that was a dumb decision, and we're going to punish you for it. And I'm like, no, no, no. It wasn't just the character who thought it was a smart decision. The world of the show said this was a smart decision, right? Or said that this was the limit that something had to happen within, and that if it didn't happen, there were going to be dire consequences. And then later, eh, no consequences. We just changed our mind. So that sort of stuff loses me. And I think a lot of times there's a show who will do that, and as soon as it happens, I will feel like this violation, like this trust with the show has been broken. And so immediately, I I will stop liking the show and then often I will find other people stop liking the same show a year later or something. And I'm saying like normally I, I, I think I'm recognizing the formal thing and so um, I'm starting to turn on it intellectually and then eventually that sort of sows its seeds and um, some other people turn on it kind of emotionally. Uh, that said, uh, I, I am not um, I'm not always the, the perfect canary in the coal mine. There are plenty of shows that, that turn me off at some, at some stage that other people continue loving for for years and years. So uh, maybe I'm just an old man raving. No, but like like take Battlestar Galactica for instance, which yeah. you mentioned, which I think was very. Even if many people hadn't watched it, I think it was. Um, it, it came around full circle. Like mm -hmm. they really, you really got a sense on the last show. They knew what they were doing on the very first show. How they were going to come around full circle. Did you ever feel like in the middle? What could have happened that would have broken the rules of of their storytelling, as as you suggest? Like, what? And so, rather than calling out a bad show, let's take a good show. Mm -hmm. What could they have done poorly that would have thrown you off? 
I mean, certainly. So that show does a lot of of pullbacks, right? It, it sort of pulls back from this initial space opera to tell you actually we're about uh, religion and actually we're about the Middle East peace process. And actually uh, we're about recognizing what fundamentally are the differences between people and not the differences between people. So if that show that continued to sort of grow in this interesting way and start mixing metaphors in a very deliberate sense, right? It sort of mixes up who the monotheists and the polytheists are. And so it sort of plays with your sympathies about sort of what you'd traditionally, where you'd expect these traits to be assigned. If all of a sudden it went to an incredibly conventional moralistic place in the end, if it sort of like seemed to teach you a lesson at the very end, like actually um, America and the monotheists are good and everyone who has, uh, you know, uh, a different constitution, a different belief system, a different look, they are bad that would have been a problem, right? If, if the Cylons in the end were just purely evil and the, and the humans were purely good, I think that would have been kind of a betrayal. Betrayal, even though in the beginning it started off, Cylons were purely evil, it seemed, and the humans were purely good. Yeah, because the world of that show was very quickly sort of announcing that like things are not entirely as they seem, right? And and pretty much from from very early on, you kept having these reveals that, you know, don't trust all of these people. People have different motivations. I mean, that was trying to give you this this complex kind of twisty world uh in in which, you know, you couldn't necessarily trust what the what the government, what the military, what your religion had told you. I think that was pretty baked into the show from moment 1. And, and what's happening with media in general now? Like you just said, Facebook is producing original shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple's producing original shows. Yeah, very much so. There, there's a, a billion channels on cable. Then there's like many different streaming services like Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu are spending tens and tens of billions to produce original shows. It seems like opportunity is greater than ever to make a TV show or to write on one or to act on one. But at the same time, only so many shows can be watched and only so many shows can be renewed. So there's a lot more turnover on shows. You don't really have many shows lasting 100 episodes anymore and going into syndication. I don't even know if the world of syndication even exists in the same way anymore. Yeah, we're going to find out. Yeah, because we're probably right at that point. Yeah. And so uh, what's happening? I, I think what's what's happening is that you're everyone wants to get into the content creation place rather than the, the content acquisition place. They see more money to make and more control to have over it. And I think there's an understanding increasingly that the viewership is never going to be as large as it once was, right? You're going to have very, very few shows that unite large swaths of the culture to watch it. Because even even though there are more TV shows than ever, the actual TV viewing audience, I don't know if it's as big as it once was because now there's YouTube, now there's all sorts of mm-hmm. types of and media YouTube out there, making, podcasting. Yeah. YouTube's making their own shows. Obviously, a lot of podcasts are turning into TV shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, so there's there's a large fragmentation of the audience. And so there's, you know, there are arguments about whether this is good or bad, but obviously you're increasingly creating niche entertaining uh, entertainment. You're creating shows that are incredibly specific and potentially only appealing to a very small demographic. And so maybe you're only showing it to the people for whom that's perfectly made and that's great, or maybe you're ignoring kind of um, some depth that might have happened if you were trying to find a way to bring into or to access larger viewerships. And you know, maybe we have a world where all of these things are being met right now. Maybe we have a world where uh, you know, two and a half men or uh, or its progeny, you know, uh, Big Bang Theory can can coexist with with Game of Thrones, with Billions, with 
insecure with Handmaid's Tale and and so on. But like the economics of it all are really different too. But because it seems like because so much because TV's gotten so big, so much movie talent has moved into TV. Absolutely. So, so yep. TV writers, directors, and stars. Are, I mean, sorry, movie writers, directors, stars are moving into all of the top television shows. Uh, Billions being a great example. We have absolutely Brian and David were movie writers. Mm-hmm. Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti were movie stars, and they're moving into TV. So, and meanwhile, on the movie side, it's all these superhero franchises are in the top ten movies each year now. So, the whole dynamics of the industry are different. Like, TV's probably become much more artistic and creative. Movies are much more kind of merchandisable and franchises franchise driven. Uh, again, it seems like also less money in TV just because of the dynamics of uh, a lesser audience per show, less opportunity for syndication, um, so many more outlets competing. Uh, I don't know. How, how does the economics of it, what do you think of the economics of it and how it affects your your career going forward? Are, are you or, telling or me, do you not think about it? Are, are you telling me I just have to buy more crypto? <laughs> In case you no, don't know, not you that. in case you don't know, uh, my computer for months now has been broadcasting to me pictures of James <laughs> telling me to buy more crypto, or more accurately, to listen to James tell me which crypto. I don't know. By the way, we should figure out why is my computer telling me this. And I've 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 checked into this. Most people on billions, their computer is telling them this as well. So is it just because that, I send you all emails? Yes, I think that's the correct so, answer. So, so so in your Gmail yes. box, yes, Google is aware of yes. that. And Google has their ad networks all yes. over every other website, so I appear everywhere. I believe that's happening, even though I have specifically turned off anything that allows them to share that information at, and that I've put blockers on that should allow them not to be able to read these things. Nevertheless, it's happening. But so you, either you, they're illegally sharing information, I'm accusing you, Google, or <laughs> I'm not accusing you, and it's just the fact that I so often read, consume, and search for financial information that they're using that to connect us. It's interesting, Yeah, there could it? be so many, so many possible entries into your mind that, that a, a good ad marketer is doing. Yes, so, um... Which is not me, by the way. I work with a, a company very good that that does this sort of marketing. Very good. They're very good. They're right in my computer. I mean, they're not they're not great yet because I haven't clicked through. But I but that's because I could just ask you. Uh, in terms of very true. Uh, in terms of we'll talk. Or about you could that ask. Uh, I mean, I've I've probably well. I won't we'll get talk about that. it off the air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in in terms of the economics of the market, are yeah, they're they're changing greatly. Uh, I don't think any of us fully know where they're. Where they're going. I mean, we almost had a writer strike last year because uh, of some of these issues and and the great uncertainty of them and how uh, certain wages for for writers and the so-called sort of middle class of writers are, are being depressed. So that's true. Um, and again, there's kind of a an economic side to it, and then there's also a creative side. And so the the creative side, I think, is kind of impressive though, because sometimes when there are these restrictions put on you, it, it kind of forces the creativity to come out in interesting ways. So you're definitely right in that films are becoming increasingly franchises and uh, increasingly superhero franchises in particular. And so when that happens, you start seeing superhero movies 
become other things, right? You're starting to see them uh, become sort of genre takes themselves that move beyond the superhero genre and become an excuse to do other things, right? So you get Captain America 2 being a 70s spy thriller, or you get like Logan being, you know, the, this combination of kind of a, a neo-noir slash, you know, nihilistic Western. You so know, a parental kind of movie. Right. It's also like, it's a little bit of Little Miss Sunshine in there too. It's, yeah. Um, I really like that movie. But you you wind up with, yeah, trying to sort of um, disguise a little bit of, of your content or or find other ways to sort of, you know, uh, have the daisies peek through as it were. Yeah. So, so f- final question or so. As you saw, as you went from show to show, and as you saw yourself improve, and particularly in the beginning, um, you obviously got better at what you did. Mm-hmm. And what were, what would you say were the keys to to improvement? You know, now and now you've been on several shows that have been among, like, let's say, the top ten shows of that year in terms of whether you call it by quality or rating or whatever. I don't know, but um, you, you're kind of reaching, you know, peak potential. And how, how would you suggest? People improve oh, in general. Stop. Uh, I, I think there are a number of, of things that I sort of tried to pay attention to. So, so one uh, one of the first things is that uh, so my first job was a writer's assistant, and a writer's assistant uh, I think is just an incredibly valuable. Uh, incredibly valuable piece of experience to have. Because for those listeners who don't know, a writer's assistant usually sits in the writer's room all day long and essentially takes notes, does research, maybe occasionally opines on something. Um, But just by virtue of that, the writer's assistant usually spends more time in the writer's room than literally any single writer on the show, certainly more time than the showrunner does. So you're actually deeply aware of how stories uh, gain momentum, lose momentum, come to be, come to disappear. And so I really took that sort of bird's eye view as an example to understand why did one pitch succeed and one pitch not? Because sometimes it wasn't necessarily platonically the best pitch, but why was that person just pitching either his audience more receptively? Was he pitching with more confidence? Like, what was it that allowed pitches to go through? And so I started um, paying attention to things like that. And so one thing um, I, I think I really improved and I learned early on was it's not important to be purely right or to think that you're right or to think that you have like the best possible story. If you can't sell that story to other people and convince them of that story... It's not right, and you can't sell an audience of it. So you've got to figure out how you sell the story. I think that's 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 a really important thing to understand. It's not, you know, how do you take that thing that's inside you and get it out there for the world to see? So I think that's that's a big one. Um, another thing has has been just to keep reading, keep watching. It's really easy when you're working on a show to just have no time to check anything else out or to just feel so exhausted that you don't want to see anybody else's content. But when you do that, you wind up, you know, potentially echoing things that are out there in in a way that's uh, in a way that seems like you're doing it more deliberately, that can feel like you're ripping stuff off, or that can also, uh, you know, miss sort of some of the advances that are being made. And so, I think just staying really aware of your field and aware of what other people are are, are doing can really kind of just help you be part of and contribute to a conversation if you know if that's ultimately what you're trying to do this for is is to be part of a conversation. Um, so, so those have been really important to me. And I think beyond that, it's just to never stop writing. I, I, I don't really ever. Um, and, uh, I know that, um, you've probably had some conversation. Have you had conversations with the show about writer's block and things like that? 
Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely with definitely with Brian. Yeah. Um, so so Brian and I differ a little bit on that. Uh, I I. I don't believe really in in writer's block, or at least I, I believe the one kind of writer's block about quality, but I don't I don't believe about output. Um, and so it's sort of a dedication to to saying sometimes, you know what? If I have to write this script and the script is sixty pages, let's say I write five pages a day. After twelve days, I'm going to have sixty pages, and so I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to have sixty pages in twelve days, and I'm not going to judge those five pages. Every day, I'm going to output them and then move the next day and keep going. And at the end of those 12 days, I'll have 60 pages. And maybe they won't be great. Maybe I'll have to rewrite a bunch of them. But first of all, probably when I look back, they're better than I would have thought they were. And second of all, I can learn from things that happened at the end of the script that are going to make the beginning better. And I wouldn't have learned those lessons if I kept rewriting those first five pages over and over and over again. That attempt to perfect them would have stopped me from moving forward and learning other lessons that were probably more valuable. And also, uh, that judgment, that just negative self-talk, uh, I found has a way of of really building up and sort of holding you back as opposed to the sense of like, whoa, after 12 days, I have a script. I have a draft. Again, that might not be the final draft. The final draft could be 20% rewritten or 100% rewritten. But I think just setting goals and then meeting them uh, really helps both the final product and and sort of the self-esteem. And I think there's uh, a pretty good dialogue, an important one between those two factors. Well, Adam Perlman, um, is it safe to say you're head writer on Billions? Is that your official title? No, my official title is uh, I'm a co-executive producer. Uh, for uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm the I'm the number two to, to Brian and David, which uh, means a variety of things. But uh, you know, I run the writers' room when when they're not there, and I I sit in on the writers' meetings with them and other writers, and then you know the the three of us have have a lot of meetings to sort of um, you know plot overall arcs to deal with rewrites of episodes. You know, if they're uh, if so, like I said, if they're not in the writers' room, I'm running the writers' room. If they're not on set, I'm I'm running set. You know, uh, so so kind of adding whatever whatever value I can when they're there, and also filling in when they can't be. Well, and I have to say. Um... It's been a pleasure for me to work with you three guys on this show. It's the first show I've ever even like mildly worked on. I'm just simply the uh, technical advisor. But when I watch what happens, I can't believe it. Actually, like you guys must work 16 or 20 hours a day every single day for the past as many months as since the this season you guys started working on this season. It's it's like unbelievable the amount of work that you guys are doing. Does every show work that hard? I'm not even trying to like compliment you or anything. It seems like actually you're brutalizing yourselves. <laughs> uh, I will say, um, no, not every show works necessarily this hard. I mean, I, I would say on I mean, most I feel like shows, I'm even working too hard. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> oh no, no, no. There's there's no way that's true. No, I'm joking. Um, if so, so a couple of things to that. One, um, I think most people uh, work pretty hard on their shows, and and some sometimes you work even harder on a show that that doesn't work, sadly, than on one that does, um, which which really can be a heartbreak. Uh, on on this one, um, yeah, this is the probably the hardest I've ever worked. It's the most hours I've ever put in, and you know, uh, part of that is that. Brian and David work uh, just an incredible amount, uh, and you know they demand so much of themselves and they uh, demand so much of the work that they that they put out and I think that sets uh, certainly an example that other people on the on the staff um, 
you know, and the crew really care about. But it's from from top down, it's just an incredible organization. You know, um, them, the writing staff, the the editing, the, the uh, editorial production, uh, post production staff, the production staff, the cast, the crew. I mean, it it really is sort of good apple after good apple, kind of working together with the understanding that you know we think we're making something pretty good, uh, and uh, you know it wouldn't be if the other people weren't weren't there and trying and, and dedicated to it. So that, that sense of a, of a common purpose really makes, uh, you know, I think really makes people when it is the 15th hour of the day, keep going a little bit harder. Um, because yeah, you could say it's good enough. Uh, and, you know, we, we try not to do that. We, we try to make it as good as we can. No, I definitely see that. And so thanks again, Adam Perlman, describing your shift from the law to TV, how you grew up with it, all the discussions. I love television, so I like I could talk about this for the next five hours, but uh, I'm sure you have to get back to billions. But thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.